it's time for a healthy Which breakfast. Which is the number one chocolate Two pizzas for the price of one. A taste so wonderfully fresh. That's a spicy Welcome to The Secret Ingredient, a podcast that takes you into the depths of food history and production. We won't tell you what to eat, but we can tell you why you're eating it. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy, joined by my co-hosts, Raj Patel of the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs and Tom Philpot of Mother Jones Magazine. On this edition of The Secret Ingredient, we'll revisit one of our first and undoubtedly one of our most interesting conversations with the late anthropologist Sidney Mintz. We first ran our show on sugar with Dr. Mintz in September of 2015, and later that year on December 27th, Sydney passed away. Today, as hurricanes continue to wreak havoc on Puerto Rico, where Dr. Mintz conducted his fieldwork for his seminal book, Sweetness and Power, The Place of Sugar in Modern History, we look back at a special extended version of our show on sugar and talk to Dr. Mintz about his book, the development of anthropology, his personal relationship with the field and history, and his role as an educator. We miss him and his ideas and perspectives every day, but we're eternally grateful for the lens he gave us through which to better understand this current social and political moment in time. Stay with us. Hello. Hello. Is this Sydney? It is. Hello. This is uh, Rebecca McEnroy. I'm calling from The Secret Ingredient with Raj Patel and Tom Philpot. Mm-hmm. How are you doing? I'm okay. Oh, wonderful. Well, we thought we would um, start off the interview and uh, get kind of a little bit about your background, if that's okay, and you're ready to rock and roll? Sure. Okay, perfect. And then we'll kind of go into some more of your work and, and what it means today, too. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So if you could just um, start, would you mind telling me how you got interested first in anthropology and your path to studying anthropology? Uh, I took my bachelor's degree in psychology just before I went off in the Air Forces, and I discovered while I was in the Air Forces that I was not satisfied with a field of inquiry that concentrated on the individual, that I was more interested in patterns of behavior, learned patterns. And so when I got out, I started in graduate school and took courses in anthropology, and I was very fortunate, I think. I fell in with a group of fellow students who were very good company and intellectually very stimulating. And in my anthropology, I was invited by a professor in my second year of graduate study to be on a team that went to work in a Caribbean society. We were sent to Puerto Rico. And at the, at the very beginning, um, what was the discussion like about anthropology? Because it was kind of a new field at the time. What was... Well, it was not, I suppose you could call it a new field. It doesn't seem that long ago to me. Um, I suppose you could call it a new field. Anthropology in the United States as a professional field, as a field that could be part of university education, was probably most influenced by a German immigrant named Franz Boas. Boas came to the United States actually with his background in the hard sciences, or theoretical sciences, if you will. And uh, he did some work in the polar regions and fell in love 
with the study of non-literate peoples. Uh, he worked with the Eskimo there, and he was very impressed by them and excited by the opportunity to get to know them. And he he went from that kind of experience into becoming an anthropologist. It was not a new word or a new field of study, but it was not yet a professional field. People weren't yet educated in it formally. And we're dating now, we're talking now about the 1890s in this country. It was earlier in England, uh, a few years earlier. And uh, the field became centered in the United States, particularly in Columbia University in New York City, there were a couple of other places that were important, too, uh, Chicago being one, but even more so, uh, I could name one or two other universities. Uh, Boas's most important early student went to the University of California and established a field there. And between the late 1890s and uh, 1930 or 35, anthropology spread more widely in this country. And we were in a favorable position. In the case of the United States, what made it uh, so interesting in the field of study is that we had our subject matter right here. There are Native American peoples in the United States, and they, were, they, were, they, were, they had not been seriously studied really until Boas, before Boas. And so that's with our subject matter. All the European countries where they developed anthropology had to go to other parts of the world, usually their colonies, in order to study uh, non-literate peoples. And so the field developed here in a context somewhat different from that for the British or the French or the other European countries that had anthropology. Did that give us a beginning? Yes. So you were doing this in the 1940s, is that correct? Is that when you That's first started? That's right. I, yeah, I started graduate school in 1946, just after I got out of the service and completed my higher degree, my doctorate in 1951. And the team of people that you went to Puerto Rico with included who? Who else was in that crew? Uh, well, uh, the names you might know are Stanley Diamond, who was another one in that bunch, and the one I was closest to, and I guess among my very best friends, was a man named Eric Wolf. Could you tell us a little bit about kind of why you went to Puerto Rico and some of your early conversations about what you wanted to learn and why you were there and what was really inspiring you at the time? Yeah. Uh, Puerto Rico was chosen for us. We students did not choose the field of study. Puerto Rico was chosen for us by the teacher who organized our research. His name was Julian Stewart. And he was theoretically very ambitious, a really smart, interesting man. And he sent a group of us down there. There must have been four or five of us in all. And uh, his hope was that anthropology could be applied to the study of a modern society. That whereas it had grown as a field concerned with people in small numbers, usually non-literate, non-Western, often enough, mostly um, non-Western, uh, who based their act social activities mostly on kinship, uh, who had technology that didn't include machines, 
one could describe these so-called, I don't like the word primitive because it's become a dirty word. It shouldn't be, but um, these people who lived by simpler means than those of the modern world, he wanted to see whether the same methods could not be applied systematically to the study of a modern society. So he picked a place where he wouldn't have to worry too much about getting us there expensively and where there had been modern influences over a period of some centuries, in contrast to sending us to parts of the American West or to Australia or to New Guinea or Africa or other parts of the world where these societies of the sort I've described were more common. And the purpose of his work was to have several students simultaneously study major economic uh, bases, communities uh, that provided major economic bases for the society's functioning. And so one of us studied a coffee-producing area, another a tobacco and minor crop area, and uh, so on. And uh, I chose to work in a sugar-producing area. Now, you will have recalled that all of this began with you asking me how I got interested in what I was interested in. And, of course, um, I got interested in sugar, but it was only after I got into the field and could get to know a number of people who cut sugar cane and loaded it and ground it and did all those other things until I got a community where I could work. I really didn't know much about it. And as I learned about it, it seemed to me a subject that deserved very careful study because its production was so widespread. It was globally widespread and had been for centuries. And it was produced overseas, not in the metropolises like Europe. And it was one of the very first things to be shipped from a tropical area outside Europe itself to become a basic commodity for masses of people. It wasn't ivory or myrrh or frankincense or any of those things. It was an everyday necessity in the lives of millions of people the world around. And this was all done in tropical areas, at least until the 1830s, when beet sugar became practical economically. And so I found that I had really stumbled upon an ancient food and one that had a special history. And, of course, I became fascinated by that history. I wanted to know how that had happened so early in the record and why it had become so successful. Well, uh, Sydney, this is uh, Raj Patel, and I'm uh, curious then, given that you found yourself in a sugar plantation, why you titled your book Sweetness and Power rather than Sugar and Power. Because I think I could say for two reasons. First of all, because uh, sweetness is more widespread. In other words, sugar is simply one form of sweetness. And there are other forms of sweetness, the most important and most ancient of which being honey, of course, which human beings don't manufacture. Bees manufacture it, but humans steal it, as do their simian relatives. And I was interested in why this commodity, why it had become a commodity, why this food was so widespread, and why the desire for it was so intense. Um, 
And I think that this was why I wanted to fit sucrose, which is the major sugar that we consume. I wanted to fit its story within the more general story of sweetness, which I think has to do with our primate nature. So that's why I called it sweetness rather than sugar and power. I was wondering about, you know, when you when you kind of stumbled upon this, as you said, and you decided that this was going to be what you were going to research uh, in Puerto Rico, what was mm-hmm. your, not really methodology, but kind of how did you approach the different layers of sweetness from, as you say, as we uh, ad, ad, associate with it as primates, all the way through the industrial production of it and mass distribution of sugar? What was your thought well, process? You, you, <laughs> my thought process when I went to Puerto Rico and got to the community where I did, I had, I, we spent several months picking out the communities in which we would work. And then having decided upon one because I thought it was broadly representative of all of the communities on the island that produce sugar, broadly representative, I then had to worry about such everyday things as where I'm going to live and how am I going to get my food and all that kind of stuff. And so it took me a while. And at that time, I wasn't thinking about the history of sugar and it becoming a commodity and other kinds of sweetness. I was just this kid scratching his head and wondering how the hell I was going to make out a sense out of this blooming confusion. And um, I spent a year and a half there. And what I was trying to do was to get my arms around, my brain around 600 or so people in this tiny village on the road so that I would be able to describe their lives. So sugar, in the sense of which I'm describing it to you now, is the outcome of a good deal more thinking, including learning from other people and, and also, of course, thinking to myself about where this fit in. I didn't write that sugar book until 18, until 1985. It's 30 years ago now, <laughs> but at the time that I was working in Puerto Rico in 1948, um, that book was still a long way off. Or e- and even the, even the idea of trying it was a long way off. And of course, it was hubris when I tried it, too, because it's, um, I think, uh, an approximation of reality like everything else. And if I had to do it over, I'd probably do some things differently. Uh, So I wasn't thinking about these sorts of things at all when I was there. I was busily learning the language and settling down and finding out where to live and all that stuff. And that continued to be the case, really, for the first, I would say, to be careful, the first year of my year and a half there. Dr. Mintz, um, can you tell us what the what it was like in the sugar fields at that time? Like, what was the the structure? So, the people living in the village were they migrants who came from somewhere else? To no, live in this no, 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 they, no, no, no. It's very different from that pattern. There, the sugar has not really, for a very long time, in the, the Western production of sugar, sugar has not depended on people who came and went except in its more marginal cases. Um, Sugar has depended traditionally 
on populations that were either forced or enslaved to form villages on the outskirts of the fields of production or within plantation communities. And the plantation is an extremely old agrarian institution, and it became overseas and uh, Western-run beginning as early as, oh, I don't know, the beginning of the 16th century. So it's a very old plantation commodity, probably the oldest. And these people were not migrants. Their parents had done the same as they, and their grandparents had done the same as they. And um, many of them were descended and recently descended from enslaved people. And that would be true in the south of the United States, in Jamaica, and Martinique, and all over the place. And so they weren't migrant people. They were settled people. The only life they'd known has been a, been a, a landless life. Uh, where you begin to find variants on this is where, after emancipation, uh, people who had been slaves begin to get land and can become peasants. But uh, that's that's a later stage in the history of that commodity. And the plantation owner was who was that at that time? And the, and the plantation owner in the plantations where I work was a uh, the owner of the, the fields and the factories were different, not differently owned, but differently managed. Okay. In my case, the land company was called Lucent Company, and <clears throat> there were three of these centrales, or mills, and they were all owned by the same corporation, and it was an enormous American sugar corporation. Hmm. And uh, some of them were owned by Puerto Ricans, who were not very different from the Americans, uh, uh, but uh, it had been the island had been American since uh, 1899, and one of the first things the American did, Americans did when they got to it was to um, begin producing sugar, right? Taking it over from local production, modernizing as they call it, and uh, a similar pattern um, at an earlier time, of course, but similar pattern can be found in almost all of the Caribbean islands that are not too saline or too mountainous. Uh, the biggest put producers were, of course, French Saint-Domingue and British Jamaica, and uh, at later times, other countries as well. The Dutch were in there very importantly in Suriname and the, the Dutch Guiana. And uh, a lot of others people were interested the the, the list is very long and, and really quite bizarre because at one point, one island was given to the Knights of Malta <laughs> to produce sugar. That was because they had produced sugar in Malta during the Crusades. Uh, there was a great deal of interest on the part of the uh, big German families, those who were in in um, trade on the, in the north, the Fuggers, were interested in getting one. Um, it was an enormous trough at which all of these particular swine were eating. <laughs> if I can in indicate uh, another dimension of it, uh, it is now estimated that in the course of the slave trade, about, uh, about 16 million Africans were brought to the New World, or at least in chains with that intention. And of those 16 million, 
about 9 million survived as far as the first year of work in the new world. 9 million. Wow. Those 9 million powered more than anything else the sugar plantations in the new world beginning as early as 1530, 1520, as early as that under the Spaniards. Sugar was brought to the New World by Columbus in 1493. Uh, first sugar made and shipped to Seville was 1516. And this nice little business ended in Brazil in 1888. Uh, when you think of the time, not only its length, but the time when they were tying people down and shipping them in the holes of ships. They had ships big enough to pack these people in side by side. You think of it beginning in 1516 and ending in 1888, all the while everybody is beating his brow and saying, oh, this is terrible, this is terrible. You can see that this was a very important, it was the largest demographic lever in the history of the New World up until the 1850s. Um, Sydney, uh, two questions. First, we should have asked this at the beginning. Do you prefer Sydney or Dr. Mintz? Uh, Tom has been using Dr. Mintz because he's just call a, me whatever you want. Because he's, he's a far more polite man than I'll ever be. Um, Sydney it is I, then. People here call me Sid. Sydney or, or if you're not formal, Sid. Sid then. I'll go with Sid. Excellent. Uh, so one of the reasons that Tom and I are a little awed to be talk, talking to you is because... <laughs> In, in this show, we're trying to sh- tell something about the secret histories of a range of ingredients. And we wanted to talk about sugar in part um, because we, we, we know that the people will expect us to say, oh, didn't you know that sugar is bad for you and that it, it'll cause all kinds of horrible things and aren't the, isn't the food industry nasty yeah. for sneaking it into our ingredients? But what we love yeah. about sweetness and power and the work that you've done, and it's opened our eyes in so many ways, is precisely to show how... The food system and and the modern world itself is premised it has sugar as a really interesting fulcrum, and you've shared already the long horror of slavery uh, mm-hmm. in in sugar. But one of the other things mm-hmm. that you've talked about is the very idea of industrial agriculture and of factories in the fields. And I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about how um, in in your book you talk about the the sort of three things that really make industrial agriculture industrial and you talk about discipline and the separation of um, production from consumption and the separation of the worker from their tools I wonder if you can talk yes. e- explain to someone who you know is listening to this and maybe expecting us to talk about sugar and diabetes and how horrible the food industry is and if you could perhaps explain to them that before we think about any of that stuff we should think about how the food industry itself is premised on the idea of the techniques honed in the manufacture of sugar yes well um I guess the first thing I would suggest in trying to look at it in its widest dimensions, um, in the north of Spain, sorry, in the south of Spain, no, it's in the north of Spain, it's, in the north of Spain there's an old cave still there, still apparently can be visited, though I have never seen it, there is a drawing inside the cave of a stick figure, human beings depicted in stick figures, climbing a tree. And he's surrounded by these little dots. 
And when you look closely, apparently you can tell that what he is being, what's happening to him is he's being bitten by bees. <laughs> <laughs> this um, drawing is, I, I think they suggest it's about 20,000 years old. Uh, and we know that primates, uh, big primates particularly, uh, chimps and other big uh, apes, um, like sugar and they will steal it if they can. Uh, they're well-known sugar thieves. And honey, of course, is uh, a central theme in the Bible, particularly in the first five chapters of the Old Testament. Um, the reason it's so important, we assume, is because people in that time knew about it and treasured it. Uh, we're not surprised. We never ask ourselves when we read the Bible, when we read about Samson and the and the lion and the, how he killed the lion and the bees and nested inside the corpse and how he reached in and took out honey. Um, we never ask ourselves, why do they like honey so much? Or at least hardly anybody I know ever did that. Um, of course he liked the, the sugar. People assume that sugar is... Um, intrinsically desirable but of course that desire can be encouraged in various ways when it's when sweetness is combined with hotness and fatness when you take dough and bake it and it rises and you coat its outsides with sweet stuff so it's hot and sweet and soft it's very desirable, we say, as if that were natural. And in some sense, I do think it is. In other words, I think there is a built-in primate desire for sweet things. And it may have to do with the fact that early primates were mostly herbivores and lived in trees, well, not surprisingly, and probably sweetness was a a clue or a sign of ripeness in fruit. So we have this this picture of um, a clever animal uh, that has built-in tastes and is constantly striving to satisfy them. And then they hit upon this, as it was called by Alexander's generals when they reached India this great reed which when you break it open has sweet liquid and when it's boiled down and hardened it's a sweet stuff like honey and uh, so sugar supplanted in some important way with a mass-produced product that we manufactured of course we don't make sucrose the plant makes sucrose and by photosynthesis, but we squeeze out its juice and harden it. And we say refine it, which means to take all the molasses out to make it white. And it becomes a commodity, and people all around the world like it. Now, some like it more than others. So there is this liking, which seems to be built in. And then there is this added-on business about uh, how how much better it would be if we could have it on everything, not only with our breakfast cereal, but also with our 
uh, do, do our donuts and our and not only with our donuts but with our salad dressing and not only with our salad dressing and so on and so on so that this is a taste that can be encouraged and um, enhanced by new forms and so it's something that can be built upon and I think that somewhere in this story probably by the 18th century it was clearly recognized by many people that if people liked a little of it they would like even more a lot of it <laughs> and the supply was inexhaustible you didn't have to hire 50 billion bees to get it all you have to do is carry some people in chains across the ocean to produce it and when it came to its production this form of organization worked itself out because the thing about sugarcane is that when it's ripe, you've got to cut it. Otherwise, it begins to dry out again. <laughs> when it's highest in sugar, you've got to get the sugar out of it. So once it's cut, it has to be ground. So it must be cut when it's ready, and then it must be ground when it's cut. And the only way to do that is to tie the field to the factory and to have discipline to make people work till they're dead so that this stuff can be turned into sugar before it becomes vinegar. Um, Dr. Mintz, or Sid, yes. of course, I, I have a few questions, and they're all kind of tied together about your, your uh, trajectory of understanding and I was wondering, you know, you mentioned you would have done something differently in your methodology had you done, done it again. And I was wondering what that would be. And then also, um, you know, through this 30-year period when you were waiting to write this book, what were your breakthroughs? What did you um, see and then maybe like fit together into the puzzle that you finally put together with the book? And the last final question is... Um, you know, the, the field of anthropology, as it's kind of um, changed and fragmented so much over the years, I'm wondering if you might be going back now to a little bit of psychology and understanding how the brain works um, with the body, with processing sugar, and um, and gaining some understanding from your roots as a psychologist uh, now. That's a very modest uh, request. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, these, these, you know, these questions don't have easy or clear answers, and and uh, and you should not at all impute too much to my clarity of thought. It's not really as if I took giant steps from one idea to the next. I, I'm um, I'm very skeptical of my uh, theoretical strength, and and uh, I I don't think much of my writing either. So. Um, you're really asking more of me than I can provide. Um, if I tried to sketch in how I thought this out more exactly, uh, the only thing I can say is that I found it very difficult to write books, and I thought it would be easier to write articles, and indeed it turned out to be much easier to write articles. And what I did was, when I finished my field work, I published a community study about that community in a book edited by all of us, our teacher and all of us, into one book called The People of Puerto Rico. 
so there's there are long chapters in each chapter is a community study and uh, I did that and then long after too long after I published the life history of a man whom I got to know in the community where I lived who was very smart and um, and really eloquent although he had no education at all he'd only had a third grade education a wonderful man and I wrote his life history he was still quite a young man when I did that but I took down what I could about what had happened to him and uh, it was published nobody paid any attention to it it was written by an assistant professor and and um, it wasn't much of a book but anyway it was a life history and I only thought after having done it and looking back on it and having gotten a couple of opinions from people whom I admired that were favorable, that I had in capsule written down what I thought to be the major features of the history of sugar in Puerto Rico. Because this man, who had been born in 1908, uh, had been right there as a little boy while they were digging the irrigation dishes on the south coast in order to establish an enormous plantation there. And it was his job to hold the lantern while the men dug these ditches all night long. He was about 10 years old. And he described this to me. And it's a wonderful image, I think, of this cop who should have been in school playing with toys and learning things stood there all night long holding his goddamn lantern while these men sweated and slaved beside him digging these ditches so that they could plant sugarcane. And um, then it became, along with that whole island, one enormous plantation for the production of sugar. Um, where that fits in my thinking, I guess it was important for me to realized that the Spanish-American War was not really about Teddy Roosevelt. It was about taking the Philippines and Santo Domingo and Puerto Rico and Cuba and all of these places. And among other things, that gave this country an enormous capacity to produce sugar. And that was part of a kind of um, late map uh, done, of course, with free labor, since this was long after emancipation in the United States and in every other country. But um, in 1888 is when the Brazilians finally gave it up, and they had become world sugar producers. And everything between there and then, the parts of Mexico were important in sugar and all those so many islands, I could see something I hadn't seen when I started out. When I started out, and appropriately, my vision was very much limited to Puerto Rico. And within Puerto Rico, this bunch of a few dozen of people who I was trying to get to know well. So when I wrote the Sugar Book, and it was published, one of my good students at the University of Chicago, he was a professor there then, uh, he'd been my student at Yale, uh, wrote to me saying that he liked the book and that he thought it was interesting that I... My first real book, my first book that I did for myself, was a book about the life history of one man, and now I've written a book that was about the history of sugar worldwide. Well, and he, he was being 
he was giving me compliments. <laughs> and I wrote him back and said that I appreciated his his uh, kindness in writing about this, but in fact I thought the books were quite alike. One was simply looking at the at the through the lens at one end, and the other was looking at through the lens at the other. Um, I didn't see when I wrote Tasso's life history how some of this would have application broadly. Uh, to much of the world, um, I only saw it in a more limited way. But I did find that writing it down taught me a lot about Puerto Rico. And then over the years, I learned more about what had happened to people in other places in sugar. And it broadened my sense of the larger political and military and social processes going on in the world at large of which this was simply a little piece, like a piece in a jigsaw puzzle. As for the business of the brain, um, I, I know nothing about the brain. <laughs> um, I certainly, the psychology I had in Brooklyn College in the 1930s wouldn't do much for either of us. <laughs> and, uh, Never know. I think there's so many people working on the senses and the body and attaching electric wires to chimpanzees. Um, it's simply not anything I know about. And if I make um, remarks, they're likely to be misinterpreted. I... I I really don't know anything about that. I do think that in the history of evolution, the way that sugar became attached to human beings is interesting, as the need, the desire for sweetness, the liking for sweetness. I think that if it's true that it's built in, then that, that's very interesting. We know that among mammals, not all mammals have it, even though mother's milk is sweet in the case of us humans. Cats don't seem to have it, but of course they're predators, they live on meat. And that, that's been studied quite carefully by a man who just retired as the head of the Monell Census Center in, in Philadelphia. Gary Beecham studied big cats and found that they didn't give a damn about sweetness. <laughs> but uh, lots, of, lots of mammals do, and uh, primates very definitely. Um, all, almost, I think all of the big apes uh, like it. Uh, but I really can't talk about the brain and all that stuff. I know it's become a great subject. It's almost like a pop subject now, and I, I don't know about about it at all. Now, there was a third part to this modest series. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. And I can't even remember what the hell that was. I'm sorry. Well, you mentioned that you uh, you do things differently with your approach to your field work and... Um, to your your study of Puerto Rico, if you would do it now, what would you do differently, and why? Hello. I'm thinking. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not very well, but I'm. Thinking, uh, Our contrary. Better than us. <laughs> what would I do differently? Let me let me say the following: that when I wrote that book and finished it, the, a lot of reviews were very, very favorable, and but the, the unfavorable ones were really more interesting. There weren't many, but they were very interesting. And the major objection that people seemed to have to the book was that um, they they didn't like the way I handled demand, and so that was some you know neoliberal communist. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> neoliberal economists don't much <laughs> like that. But uh, I was using the wrong noun there. But uh, um, I, the book, I someone said to me, what's good about it is exactly what they say is bad about it, that it's a series of successive approximations. And I think that that's really so. That's what it is. I tried over and over again to make more and more sense of how it should have come to be that this one food that had begun as a luxury uh, in, in medieval times and not known in Europe until really 1300, except for the, um, the two crusaders who couldn't do much about bringing it back, that this this substance should have become so important and such a wonderful thing to uh, missionize with, such a perfect thing for missionizing. Um, you bring them all kinds of goodies, including the Bible and sugar, and um, that that story is is. See, I if I if I'm an old man now and I can't do it, but if I were to do field work in Puerto Rico now, I still have my contacts there and I still go back occasionally. But I'm not going to go back anymore. I'm really too old now even to make a trip like that. But if I were going to go back now, knowing what I do now, it would take me a while of sitting there with my friends, probably a month or two before I'd know what to study. Um, I couldn't pick it up where it was. Sugar's gone in Puerto Rico. There isn't any sugar. And uh, I would be interested in what happened to those people after it, after it went, when it was economically no longer worth it to those companies to produce it there, and they went elsewhere. What what does it do when we burn over a part of the world with our civilization and then cart it away because we can't make any more money there? Hmm. Uh, I'm interested in what's happened now in the Pacific with these tiny little idiotic republics that are going to be drowned year by year more and more, and their struggle to feed their own populations because we take the fish out of their waters and their land is being eroded by the sea, and what becomes of them? Um, are they all going to have to end up eating ramen? Is that the uh, I have two friends who study food, and they say to me that ramen is the sugar of the future. And hmm. I say to them, there's a big difference because the people who produce the sugar were able to develop a trade union movement and collective bargaining and make a case for themselves in the world they lived in, whereas these people can't do anything to make a case for themselves. So they're probably going to eat ramen forever. Hmm. I would. That's. I think that's what I would want to do. I would. If I went back to Puerto Rico now, I would take a vacation in the village there. They've often invited me to just come and retire there and just just live there and listen to the sound of the water. Very tempting. Um, <laughs> they they live in a tiny tiny village on the south coast with a little bay right nearby. I could hear the sound of the water all the time I was there that year and a half, and they were just wonderful people. Um, I would want to stay there for a couple months and find out how people are making out and what they're doing and what they're thinking. And then maybe I could figure out what to study there. I think I'm very interested in what we leave behind. 
And uh, our ability to do that, of course, is remarkable, too. We simply tell them after their bauxite is all gone, well, it's all gone now, kids, the game is over, or whatever. I, I'm not able to tell you, really, with any confidence of all, at all, what I would do where I were able physically to go back and do that, except to say I would want to sit and talk to them and hear what they're thinking and spend time in their company and then maybe begin to... The thing about people, and these, of course, are good friends, so they talk to me about anything, but the thing I've learned about people everywhere I've worked, and that includes Hong Kong near the very end of my career and Jamaica and all kinds of places. I did a book uh, in 2010, I think it was, uh, called Three Ancient Colonies, and it's about my work in Jamaica and Haiti and in Puerto Rico and all three places. And what I found in the places I've worked like those and a few others is that if you ask people questions respectfully about things they know, um, it'll probably be the first time they've been asked a respectful question by some white outsider in the last hundred years. And they'll tell you. And in no time at all, they'll tell you more than you even want to know. That's been my experience in the field. If I could go back, I think I'd want to sit and listen for a while. Did you approach that differently when you started out in Puerto Rico? Um, when I went there, I... Uh, I I've written a lot, some, not a lot, but I've written a couple of articles about this because some, some of it's kind of amusing. When I first went there and, and we spent a little time at the university, the people at the university were not at all happy with us being there. And they had good grounds for feeling that way. And there's a bunch of arrogant, young, white, American, so-called social scientists who come down to study them as if they were studying the Zulu. And um, we, we got a very cool reception at the university. I think deserved. When I got to the field and went to work in this community where I'd made only one or two friends beforehand, simply enough to be able to say, well, I'd like to live there. And somebody said, well, we'll find you a place where you can live. And I said, I'm, I've got to get my food. And they said, oh, so-and-so will cook your food for you. And, so once those arrangements were made and I moved in, I was really green. I discovered that people, um, though they'd never said it to me, uh, thought I was kind of an idiot. <laughs> and of course, they're perfectly right. I didn't even know how to use a toilet. That I didn't. I I didn't know anything. I couldn't speak Spanish. I was just barely learning it. And. Uh, they, they, but I was a lovable idiot. <laughs> I didn't mind them laughing at me. It was perfectly okay. I wasn't on my dignity. And uh, so they took me in hand and educated me. And once I was educated uh, the way they wanted, then I'd become a fellow human being and, uh, and um, we could deal with each other. Um, Anthropology depends heavily on trust in its work. Participant observation relies on the virtues of the informant, the man, the local man or woman or child, who's willing to speak with you and to explain things to you. 
it relies heavily upon that, and it has to give something back. And it's frankness, candor, and uh, good humor, if that's possible. And uh, th- the methodology is really very un... If you're trying to take down a kinship system, if you're trying to measure a field, uh, for those things you need have to have methods. And for those things we do. But fundamentally what we're doing in field work is winning the trust of the people we talk with so we can find out more about their inner thoughts and whatever it is that we don't see. Um, That's why we have to live in the community and not 30 miles away. That's why we have to be there on weekends and overnight so that we can be regarded as people who think their way of life is worth living. Um, most anthropologists now don't do that or don't think it's necessary or are afraid of it but say that they don't do it because it would look exploitative. Uh, I didn't have any of those problems. Hmm. Wow. So I wonder if we could back up. Um, I um, One of the parts, as Raj said, that I'm really fascinated about in, in Sweetness and Power is the sort of um, the way that the sugar crop works, the way that it becomes this um, urgent task to cut it at the right time and then to immediately to mm-hmm. to squeeze it. Um, and it's, you know, a lot of money is riding on it. And um, it, it, it really strikes me that this is a, uh, that mass producing a crop like that could never be done with, with peasants, right? You can never get peasants to work that hard on something that wasn't theirs for this concentrated period of time. And yet slavery is the perfect uh, style of uh, labor for, for that kind of crop. Is um, Well, uh, s- slavery worked because people were taken far enough away from where they came from that if, so that if they ran away, they couldn't get very far. There was no place for them to go. They weren't at home. They weren't like people being exploited at home. It's not like uh, the British in India or things of that sort. Uh, This is a case where you move people away from everything they know, everybody they know, every skill that they have. And um, so that decisive break, I think, is important in making slavery work. You can train people. Obviously, you can train people to do these things because... um, the sugar industry in Queensland, Australia, never had any slavery. It was based on free labor. At first, the labor was uh, what they called it, blackbirding. They stole people. They called the people Kanakas. They stole people from all over the Pacific and brought them. And because they're a racist country, they decided at one point that even, even as coerced workers, they didn't want them, so they dropped them all back and started to do it with um, what they regarded as a lower class of white people. But uh, all those people learned how to cut sugar cane and, and uh, to do those things. The important thing about the discipline is making sure that the connection between the agriculture and the factory is uh, supple, is uh, resilient. Um, sugar can last 10 hours or 12 hours without being cut. After 24 hours, it gets itchy, uh, harder, 
And uh, if you can get the cane there at exactly the rate that the mill can grind, then you're on very safe ground. That became much better once they had steam. And that dates from about 1830, 1840. But up until then, it was hard to do. And uh, there were lurches and the gaps in the production. But uh, they made it work by beating people and by pushing them very hard. And when they're enslaved, that's easier. Right. Being able to threaten to kill a man um, and mean it uh, gets him to make a tremendous effort. So, no, I just wanted to observe that Rebecca was excited to talk to you, too. I mentioned that Tom and I had a particular excitement only because we have gone to bed with copies of Sweetness and Power <laughs> under our pillow uh, in, a, in a way that uh, Rebecca hasn't. You um, poor man. <laughs> it reminds me, of a, reminds me of a very dirty joke about Mrs. Roosevelt, which I will not tell. <laughs> oh, come on. You have to. This is a podcast, no, so no. We're, we're freed yeah, but, from... Uh, but, but the gag line is, oh, you poor man. <laughs> okay, people can Google that. Um, <laughs> um, but the, I'm, the, the, the world in which slavery and sugar were linked has a, a, a sort of modern analog. And I, I wonder if you could tell us the story about Britain's relationship to slavery, because uh, today a lot of people are interested in ethical consumerism and they want their um, their food to be made in a fair trade way so that the workers aren't exploited. Um, Britain yeah. had uh, a, a, a ostensibly a dim view of slavery. Uh, and yet, mm-hmm. as you as you recount in the book, um, th- th- this was a, a rather two faced view. Where on the one hand, Britain uh, wasn't uh, uh, engaging in slavery per se, but but it but it was in another way. And I wonder if you could explain that a little bit. Uh, I'm afraid I missed the last part of what you're saying. That I explain in the book the difference between slavery and something else. No, it, Britain was. Uh, uh, abolished slavery um, in the colonies, but it still engaged with slavery through Brazil. And I wonder if you could talk about that. Um, I let, let me see. Let me start to say what I think you mean. I'm not sure I do know. Um, in certain parts of the world where slavery had been a standard practice for a, a century or more. Uh, after it ended, the planters did their best to maintain the same social relationships that they had had before. Uh, they wanted to have a labor force that was as defenseless as the slaves, even without slavery. And uh, the answer to that was migrant labor that was contracted. Is that the thing you're talking about? Carry on. That, that, that's, that, that's, that's a direction I, I wanted to explore as well, so yes. Yeah, well, in the case of the Caribbean, uh, the two places that provided that, the main two places that provided that contracted labor uh, were China and India. Hmm. And in the case of these two places, it's important 
to notice that one of them was already colonial, was a colony of, of a major power, and most of those Indians who were contracted went to places that were British colonies. And the Chinese, of course, that were imported, um, came from a place, the government of which was quite in, incapable of defending its own citizens overseas. So they selected populations uh, that could not be defended by their governments and that could not defend themselves. And so they could uh, reproduce to some extent the very same conditions that had been made slavery successful when that was a major form of exploitation. Um, the biggest importer of, of Chinese was Cuba. There were about 100, between 135 and 150,000 Chinese that went, went there with contracts. The contracts were, of course, not worth the paper they were written on. They were no good anyway. Uh, I have one of those contracts hanging on my wall. Hmm. And uh, the, the people who, who went to um, uh, the British colonies, the Indians who went ma mainly to Trinidad, but also to, uh, uh, to British Guiana, and a few Indians even to Martinique and Guadeloupe. Um, those people also were completely defenseless legally in every way, so that they're being free. Uh, in other words, they're not being slaves. was not much protection. So those labor conditions could be perpetuated, at least to some extent, for an additional half century. One of the things we see, see about slavery in the New World is wherever people want to end it, the people who want to keep it always say, well, yes, we, we will end it, but the people who are enslaved don't know how to be free. We have to educate them to be free. Let's keep them for another 50 years while we educate. Right. And almost everywhere it worked. In the United States, for a little more than 50 years, we've, we've been educating them for the last 150 um, you know, I'd like to give you the opportunity to maybe illuminate just one thing, and that's the significance of home in your work. So this idea, like what you're talking about, um, that people are more easily, um, you're, you're able to enslave people more easily as an oppressor if they don't have a homeland or a home to go yeah. back to. Um, and, yeah. you know, maybe could could you give some thoughts about your current understanding of today's migrant labor workers and um, and the significance of, of home? Uh, one of the things that lessens the um, visibility, one of the things that seems to modify the modern situation is the cheapness of transportation and the ability of people to return to where they came from unless, of course, they're driven by war or oppression uh, to migrate. Um, keep in mind that in the 19th century, if I'm remembering correctly, 100 million people crossed oceans to work. Now, some small portion of that total were enslaved people, but the majority were free. Half of that population was white, and half of it was not white. And the half that was white went mostly to the social democracies like Canada and the United States and, you know, South Africa, whatever. And the other half, the half that was not white, 
transferred for the most part from one tropical colonial area to another. And this enormous uh, international redivision of labor was accomplished mainly to get work done. Most of those people, a lot of them were fleeing persecution too and, and, and hunger, but for the, mo- for the most part, they were going to different jobs. And one of the things that's lost in, the, in not having your home and not having a home you can return to is a sense of belonging, of course. Um, you partly get that from people who are in the same boat you are, but you, you, you no longer have that to lean upon. And in most cases, what people lose in these instances is their family. So not only do they leave the physical place and community from which they come and the friendships they had with people there, but they also lose for the time being all the people that they're close to. So it is in some odd way a very modernizing experience because it re it, it requires the individual to rethink his identity as as an individual and the kinds of human relationships he's likely to form at least at the outset are with one other person or two other people because there's no setting in which he can reconstruct the situation he remembers from home and frequently he doesn't have the language to do that it was uh, plainly very critical in the case of the enslavement of Africans, but it remains, I think, quite strong for any kind of migration. Um, my parents came from Eastern Europe, and uh, they became American citizens, and they learned English in their fashion. And, um, but the difference between uh, me here and my grandfather back there is uh, more than just two lifetimes. It's a whole, whole way. The grandfather had kept what he had, and the grandson can become a different person. The ones in between were in transit, perpetual transit, from the time they left until the time they died. Um, obviously, some situations are worse and some situations are better. But it's an enormously transformative and often traumatic experience psychologically, I think. Um, I don't know that we, we're we're now getting lots and lots and lots and lots of literature about it. And we had that in the United States uh, 75 or 100 years ago when people were coming in, in their millions to this country. So we have lots of human records of this thing. But um, for every person, it's a new it's a new trauma. For every person, it's a new experience, and uh, I think very costly. It, it can be enriching, of course. People like to emphasize that side of it, but uh, I think that it has to be seen for how big it is and how different it makes the world. Because compared to the migrations of 1850, um, these migrations are really very big. Uh, but I think it is important for those of us interested in globalization to realize that 100 million people left their homes across oceans in the 19th century, not think that globalization began the day before yesterday. Does that Sid, help at all? That's wonderful. Thank you. Sid, I wonder if, if you could talk us through 
the you know the way that sugar went from a luxury um you know in europe um enjoyed by just a few people to suddenly in the 19th century in england getting back to raj's question in the 19th century england it emerges at, at a certain point as a staple of the working class and just sort of talk us through how that happened and, and how that worked Well, when it first got to England, the first boat to carry it to England was around 13, I don't remember, in the, in the 14th century sometime. first boat that got there, I think from Venice. And sugar was known in Western Europe for a while, but only as a kind of rarity. And, um, the um, Moors, as people like to call them, brought it to Spain around uh, 750 and they began to plant sugar. Uh, southern coast of Spain is the only place in the in Europe where you can grow sugar, grow sugar cane, and, and make sugar if you want to. Um, on the in continental Europe, uh, they had been long growing it in the islands of the Mediterranean, but it was scarce and not well known and of interest and all that sort of stuff in Europe um, after. The dates I've suggested, middle of the 8th century for Spain and 14th century for Britain, um, it only begins to become available in the 18th century. Uh, and it, I did most of my reading on England because that seemed to me the most important case for what I wanted to explain. Um, I don't really know the story for Europe. And, and incidentally, one of the um, really dreadful omissions from the book, I don't deal at all with Asia, where sugar was produced by entirely different means and with different consequences. But in, in Europe, it's only really around 1750 that sugar begins to be um, a food that might be within the reach of working people. And 1800, when it begins to be consumed in large quantities. Um, its history is understandable, I think, if we compare it to, I don't know, caviar or truffles or, you know, some other delicacy of this kind, because uh, consuming it um, before 1750 was a way of um, showing off. And it was shown off by kings and archbishops and the kind of people that were able to afford it. Um, some idea of how it changed, I think that I'm, I'm going to get this wrong, I'm sure, because I don't remember it that well. But um, one of the British kings in the 13th century writes to the mayor of Winchester and says, I would like two pounds of Alexandrian sugar if so much can be had at one time. <laughs> uh, that's not the way you expect kings to address mayors, but um, that does give you an idea of how precious this stuff was. And, and I have said that when it came to making objects of sponge sugar, if you can imagine a Bentley made out of sugar that you have carried into your banquet after the banquet is over for people to admire and then invite them to break pieces off and eat it. Um, it probably would cost as much as a Bentley to have a Bentley of sugar. 
uh, available that way, but it's a, an indication of its preciousness. And it becomes common, popular, uh, intensely desirable when it's combined with the three stimulant drinks that reach Europe about the same time. They, in 16th century, is right for coffee, tea, and chocolate. That is the mass consumption of them. Um, and when combined with them, you get this intense sweet taste combined with a stimulant, with a psychotropic stimulant. Um, oh, my, that was lovely stuff. And the first pause that refreshed was not Coca-Cola. It was uh, tea and sugar in England and or tea or coffee and, and, and sugar in some places like France. Um, so that this became the the drink of choice and uh, the whole uh, uh, temperance movement in England is uh, quite lovely because it was uh, managed largely by the clergy and uh, it talked, it created the tea garden and of course tea totaling and tea time and all these good things about family and straight living uh, because Working people had gotten into the habit of getting up on Monday morning hung over and falling into their machines and getting their arms cut off, and it was very bad for production. And when they were able to get them all to drink tea instead, it was a marvelous, uh, marvelous advance. Um, and I think that this process of percolation downward uh, from rarity and precious good to everyday necessity commonplace on every table, uh, that kind of process says something about the way that uh, capitalism has imagined the world, the very world that it was creating, how it was able to see along the way what the possibilities were um, there was a time, after all, when there were foods that only the king was allowed to eat. But when sugar came along, the king was very happy to forego it just in return for what people would spend to have it. Um, and I, I think that it's a... I say in the last page of that book that the first cup of sweetened tea drunk by a British worker was a, a, a historic event, and I think it's true. It marked a change in the way people saw each other, and uh, and it's and it's worth remembering. Um, Sid, uh, you begin. Have I put you all to sleep? No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> um, so you begin the book not with words, but with a picture, with William Blake's yes. uh, picture yes. of Europe supported by uh, Africa and America, and. Right. The question I have is about uh, a politics around that. Uh, the, 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 the question I have is, what do you think is a, an appropriate restitution for that, given the world that we live in now? I, I'm, I, I'm curious, in other words, about your, um, the, the politics that you think we should be embracing, given everything that we learn about the way that the world has been created through sugar and through slavery and through um, colonialism, do do you have uh, what's a the pay, what's the payback? 
Well, yeah. I mean, what? What? I mean, what? What's next? What? What should have? What do you want to see? I mean, not, not. This is asking you not as an anthropologist, but as someone who has witnessed and studied uh, the consequences of this. What do you think? What do you want? Well, I guess most of all, I would like more coming to terms with what happened. Um, that, that's the beginning, I think. Uh, there's a, a, a black writer in the United States, he's actually Baltimore-born, uh, who calls himself Tenehisi Coates, who has written about um, restitution. And uh, I think that that's not the final chapter. That's not the what needs to be done. I think what needs to be done is for... Uh, all of my fellow citizens in this country to understand what happened and to be able to say this is what was done and now we must think about how to make the playing field level for all of us in this country and and by some means for all of us eventually in the world because we can't continue to live by ignoring that past um, that's what, what occurs to me first. Um, I think to think about it in political terms is difficult. Um, I don't have a vocabulary even for that. But I think that until, uh, I mean, when, when I think of what happens around us, what happened in the town in which I live, in Baltimore, just a few weeks ago, when I think of events like that or what happens in Charleston, I think, God almighty, uh, we're living in the dark ages. People don't understand anything about their own past. Um, that's the beginning, and I don't know really even how we do that, but at least I can say it. Um, I think that's where we start. We try to educate ourselves and others to the past, that, the, what people endured because of us, and, and, and to try to make amends at least to, by acknowledging it. We don't even do that. Yeah. Uh, one of the difficulties in this country, of course, as I think you probably know, is that when you say to many of our fellow citizens, uh, what about this? Don't you think this is wrong? They, they are likely to explain to me that, no, their parents came from Italy or you know somewhere else, and after all, it's not their problem. They have, they're not responsible. And I think that um, the, if we can't get beyond that, then we can't get anywhere. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a beautiful way to wrap. And I, I just have one more question. If you don't have anything to add, that's fine as well. But um, after, you know, working as an anthropologist for, for so long and understanding the human experience at such depth, what would you like to leave behind about your understanding of humanity for generations to come? What do you want people to gain from your work? Well, I'm not sure I can add to what I've told you, um, really, I'm thinking now. Um, I have a lot of former students who are still teaching anthropology, and uh, I had a lot of students, particularly at Yale, but also here at Hopkins, who uh, became, went on in something else, but took courses with me, and um, that's the best thing I ever did. That's the most important thing I ever did, much more important than anything I ever wrote. Um, I think that having some um, 
useful, illuminating influence over people younger than oneself is a, an enormous privilege, and uh, I think that I've already left that. In other words, I, I haven't anything else I particularly want to give. Um, um, I've always thought the most important thing I ever did was to help to start the Black Studies program at Yale and to uh, teach introductory anthropology for about 30 years. Those were the most important things I did as a, as an adult. And uh, I see them as my paying my society back for the privilege of teaching. Um, but I don't have anything else to to give. And I, I, I don't know if you people, you guys know how, you guys and lady, know, <laughs> know how old I am. But I'm an old man. We have heard. And, uh, <laughs> I'm still writing. But it's um, not anthropology. It's uh, just a, a promise I made in writing. And um, I still enjoy life. I think I'm very fortunate. Uh, I, but I really don't have anything to add to that. Dr. Mintz, um, I, um, it's, I'm finding it very difficult to let you go off the phone because uh, <laughs> I have a million more questions for you, but I know that we have to wrap up. But I just want to ask one more, and that is um, in Tasting Food, Tasting Freedom... Uh, which came mm-hmm. out in, uh, I think, 96. You have a, 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 a wonderful essay in there about American cuisine. And you ask the question, is there an American cuisine? And if I remember correctly, I've been traveling and didn't get a chance to reread the essay. You conclude that with the answer no, and it's you know basically that if you go to a place like France, people can argue about cassoulet and my mother's cassoulet versus your mother's cassoulet. And they talk about food. They argue about food. It's important. And in the 90s, when you wrote the essay, you felt like we didn't have that here. And my question for you is, what is it almost 20 years since um, with the rise of all of this kind of new interest in food and the farmer's market and all this kind of stuff? If you think mm-hmm. we're moving, and people, I do feel like people now are arguing about food a little bit. Um, do you have you changed your opinion on that? Well, I, you know, uh, I think that cuisines, real cuisines, begin in particular regions. Uh, what we call French cuisine is a kind of synthetic thing built out of dishes chosen from across the French nation, and. So we know them from French restaurants where they always have crepe à de cantin, and then they have a burgundy stew, beef stew, and so on. And when it became French cuisine was when it became France, and then you have French cuisine. Um, the United States had regional cuisines in its very beginning, but they were very, very weak um, because the people who were cooking had no background and no particular background and they came from different places and they really couldn't put it together that way. I mean, someone listed the 10 most important or 10 most popular American foods, you know, ham and cheese sandwich, barbecue, that kind of a list. Um, And that's not a cuisine. It may be what people eat, but it's not a cuisine. Um, I think that it's wonderful that there are, these markets are growing, and I think it's terrific that we've got some uh, chefs taking food very seriously and going back to the natural ingredients. I think it's all great. Um, but I think that it's a very uphill fight. 
and I hope people continue to fight it. Um, we still can't get companies to put on their boxes um, the amount of sugar they have in them. They will tell you in grams, but they will not tell you in percentage. The only way you can find out where sugar stands in relation to other ingredients is the ingredients are listed in order of importance. So almost every breakfast cereal begins, um, now they're talking about, you know, whole grain. It begins with oats or oatmeal or some damn thing. And then the second ingredient is sugar, and the third ingredient is molasses. We can't get them, the sugar people, to tell us how much sugar they're putting in stuff. And we can't because there's such a powerful lobby that the Food and Drug Administration is unwilling to do it. Every time they try, a couple senators visit them and tell them what lies ahead if they insist. Um, So our fight, if it is a fight, with the food industry is not only a, a difficult one, a hard one, but it seems it's going to be an endless one. I'm very much in favor of the uh, of the people who are trying to do this. I'm very supportive of them. It's one of the things I really do make a fuss about. But um, but I think it's it's going to be a hard struggle to do that. Um, if we could only get the bad things to happen all at the same time. If only 10,000 people would die the same day from obesity, or, then maybe we should get something to happen. But it's very hard to change. I'm very pessimistic about it. It's very difficult to, to dent. Um, whether we can create a real American cuisine, well, we certainly can't create a real American cuisine until we are producing better food, food of better quality. Um, We've got to stop judging the food that we eat by the size of it or the color of it. Uh, Taste has to come in somewhere in that list of of features. So I think it's, um, I'm very pessimistic about making a significant change. Of course, I think, you know, upper middle class people are going to continue to eat at good restaurants and to raise their children on good food and all that. I think that'll certainly continue, but I think to create a, a national cuisine um, to get most Americans to eat properly is good. It's a long way off still. So I'm an optimist about everything and a pessimist about a lot of the details. <laughs> but just like Antonio Gramsci. <laughs> Pardon me? Just like Antonio Gramsci. That's what he said. Optimist of the... <laughs> Optimist of the heart, pessimist I, I, of the I mind. I, I, I tell you, for a long time, I was absolutely unwilling uh, to use the word, uh, what's his favorite word? Hegemony. hegemony. Yeah, I didn't use hegemony for years. Even though the Spaniards had hegemony in the New World, I simply would not use the world because I was so mad at, at, at Gramsci. But uh, yeah, he got a point. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can't tell you how grateful we are for this opportunity. Thank you so much. Well, I'm glad to talk to you, but I'm also glad that your buddy said that he was going to let me go after one more question because <laughs> if he if he had asked me another question, I would have to pee in my pants. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a very bad way to end the. <laughs>
Oh, it's very enjoyable. Thank you, Thank so, you much, so much. Sid. All the best. You're Bye-bye. the best. Dr. Mintz passed away December 27, 2015, just months after we spoke. I still remember calling Johns Hopkins University where he taught to find information on a report that he died. I asked the main operator who answered the phone if he could connect me with the anthropology department. And when he asked for further information to direct my call, I told him that I'd heard Dr. Mintz had died, but I couldn't find any information on it. The line went silent and his voice cracked as he said to me, no not Sid. That conversation spoke volumes about who Sid was and how he moved through the world. Not only his ideas and work, but also who he was as a person touched so many lives and continued to speak to us about the power of history, personal stories, and education. You can find an entire archive of our Secret Ingredient podcasts at thesecretingredient.org, on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. We have three wonderful hosts for this show, Raj Patel of the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs, Tom Philpot of Mother Jones Magazine, and for KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. Thanks for joining us. At KUT, bringing you rigorous fact-based reporting is the highest priority. Even during uncertain times, KUT exists to serve the greater Central Texas community, and your support is what keeps this service strong. Give today at KUT.org. Thank you.